Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig Dale, I'm the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal, and this week my guest is David Patrick, author of recently published book Front Page Scotland, which looks at the relationship between Scotland's constitutional debate and the media, especially at how stories about that debate were framed when they were published. Hello David, how are you? Hi Craig, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm great and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss the, the book. Yeah, it's a topic that I'm sure many people have had many thoughts about over the over the years since the referendum. So it'd be it's going to be really interesting to dive into it. Can can we just start? What was the thing that got you started with uh, with this project? And can you just take us through essentially what the book is about and what you found? Um, in a sense, it was the the original concept for the book purely came about because of um, I suppose um, necessity of timing is when I'd originally um, completed my PhD at the end of 2013, it almost lined up a, exactly a year until the Scottish referendum mm. was happening. Because my previous work in, had dealt with uh, newspapers as a source, I wanted to apply that to something else. And this, you know, a very important historical juncture just presented itself almost naturally. Um, and it's went through several iterations, but ultimately the version which is <clears throat> presented in the book is a two-month a two month study from Monday to Friday of um, eight different newspapers and how they covered the referendum and the build-up to the vote and the two weeks afterwards. Um, and in total, it ultimately um, involves, I think, just below seven or just under 7,000 different articles were accessed and read and reread, ultimately, yeah. so that I could um, pick out particular trends or themes which emerge in the coverage and certainly there's some aspects which um, I expected, you know, a focus on uh, economics, for example, a focus on certainly some of the perceived negative aspects of independence. But there was also, and I hope to get into this during the interview, there was also a, a focus on individuals and on certain themes which I didn't um, go into the research expecting to find, but they presented themselves through the analysis and then I had to sort of follow those uh, those particular avenues. And it's it's certainly been something in many ways of, uh, you know, a labour of love because it, it did, it did was very demanding in terms of the the number of sources and also the, the application of the methodology to it and trying to be balanced, trying to detach yourself from the material. Um, and, and it's and the fact that it's got to this stage now um, is uh, yeah it's it's been a long old process but I'm I'm glad that you know uh, I can at least put something out there which might on some level um, help people appreciate the media's uh, the media's um, influence at that time and in, in several aspects how it, it continues to have this same influence and in the way we think about politics on a day to day basis. Do you think that the the media did play a, a very influential role in, in shaping or uh, shaping opinion, or was it more reflecting opinion? That's, that's a really interesting, really really interesting question, Craig. I think it's almost unavoidable that um, because they're such an established part of political discourse, <clears throat> and they have been for decades, if not centuries, newspapers and as part of the wider media, which now includes, you know, television, online sources, social media, and whatnot, they're all part of this <clears throat> media ecosystem, and the and they, they feed off each other, they can critique each other and whatnot. But the more important or the more critical aspect is is because 
newspapers in some respects are held to um, less rigid standards than something like the BBC, is they have more freedom um, or more opportunity to frame stories in what could be a partisan or less objective manner. And that is something which I think has to have an influence on certain ways that we look at political concepts, because if most of the, the sources uh, um, <clears throat> across a broad range of outlets, you know, and that can be middle market, it can be tabloid, it can be broadsheet. If they're ultimately all saying very, very, um, uh, or persistently saying a very, very similar narrative, then that has to, to my mind, has to have an impact on the way that a lot of people um, uh, generate their own political ideas. And a, a further aspect of this, which I, I've mentioned in the book, but I've tried to draw out a little a little more um, than I have in previous papers and whatnot, is as much as the, the newspaper industry specifically is seen as being one in decline in terms of um, sales, in terms of the number of people who are employed in it, <clears throat> it's still got a, a very, very integral part of this, like I said, this ecosystem um, that exists. And it's, it's, it's still an integral part or a very, very important conduit for the dissemination of political ideas. And even though, that, like I said, things like sales are going down, um, other forms of media like social media, like uh, television, still gets its cues in many instances from the newspaper industry. And this this still continues. But a further aspect that, again, I've tried to bring out in the, the book to some degree is even if you don't buy a newspaper, there is still a passive influence that they can have on your life and how you conceive of ideas. Because in the example I always give of this, um, it's probably based on my own experiences, largely, but I think a lot of people could probably relate to this. Is, um, for example, if you were um, an average student and you were going into, you know, you were traveling on public transport to, to go to university, for example, in the course of that one journey, and this would apply to a lot of people who either, you know, travel to work or just interact with society during the day, purely through walking through, you know, bus stations or walking past any newsagent outlet. You might never buy a newspaper any day of your life, but the headlines are still there and they're still in the public yes. domain all the time. And without even, in some instances, consciously realising you're doing it, as you can passively take in these messages day after day after day, and it can still affect what your opinion of something is. And when you look when you look at something like, um, probably one of the best examples that in terms of what we're specifically talking about was the fact that um, economic stories related to the concept of independence, particular ones which were in some way damaging or um, uh, critical of um, the perceived uh, or the, the speculative plans for the Scotland's economy under independence, they were appearing on the front pages of newspapers with quite a, a degree of regularity. So again, even if someone never ever buys a newspaper or picks one up, that specific instance, for example, the idea that um, the economy would be in worse shape under an independent Scotland, that can still feed into the public narrative, even to people who aren't usually part of what you would call the newspaper audience, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we found this uh, the, the, the impact of that in our own work, where, yes, we can put, we, and we do put out uh, material through social media, but when we engage with uh, the more traditional media, uh, with with our policy work or whatnot, um, we are reaching a different audience as well. 
um, for you are reaching the people who who do read that particular newspaper, whether it's in print or digital form, and and they might not be the same people that you reach on social media. Because it's, it's, it's certainly, I think, uh, um, an incredibly important aspect to consider as to how well whether there would actually be any dramatic differences in terms of what the coverage would be should there be a second referendum, which mm. politically speaking does look like it could be a possibility, even though the fact, you know, the, the various like pressures of the pandemic and whatnot have seen that being put to one side. But to my mind, it seems... Um, fairly obvious or fairly self-evident that it's going to become a live issue again in terms of something which engages the populace and by extension the media will be covering again but whether or not there'll be a huge difference from the way the discourse was framed in 2014 I'm not so sure because I think it's almost guaranteed that there'll still be a huge a huge focus um, arguably a disproportionate focus on the economic aspects of the debate um, it made up a huge part of the coverage yeah. in 2014. Um, and that, in terms of uh, when I say the economic aspects, that was obviously the big ones in terms of like currency was obviously a huge one. And um, a focus on the future of the NHS was a similar one. But it also trickles down into uh, touches on other aspects, such as um, the, the effect that independence could have had on household bills or household expenses, mortgages, pensions, those kind of day-to-day financial aspects. But one of the, the things that you see from this, and, it's, um, and it, this became more obvious to me through going through the sources over and over again, is even though the economic frame, if you want to call it that, got a disproportionate degree of coverage, is a lot of it was hugely speculative at best. There was very, very few... Um, very, very few of these things could be reported, even if they came from banks or other, you know, uh, supposed experts in these fields. Um, the idea of being able to suggest like what a country's finance would be, finances would be five years down the line, ten years down the line, was at, at its very best informed speculation from both sides. But this was never really um, presented as such through the media. And the one aspect that was um, quite clear and was particularly evident in the more centre-right newspapers, so the likes of the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph, the Times, they tended to be far more critical of claims coming from the, the independence side, from the Yes campaign, than they were of comparative claims coming from uh, the Better Together campaign. So mm. as, as much as there were exceptions to this, there was a persistent trend where, um, especially when it came to economic aspects, claims that were made, for example, in the white paper um, from November 2013, or subsequent claims that came out regards uh, currency, the future of the NHS, tended to get um, far more critical treatment in the likes of editorial columns or comment pieces or even in the letters sections when um, it was something which could be regarded as a positive claim regarding independence than was the case for comparative claims coming from the, the unionist side, which in several instances um, were essentially taken at face value. Mm. Do you have a couple of examples of of, of that? Um, a, a key one that uh, I think is, is quite interesting, especially with the benefit of hindsight, was the, the debate or the discussions around Scotland's potential relationship with the EU. Mm. Um, should post Because obviously this... You know, this all happened in 2014 and what, like, uh, uh, oh, barely a year and a half 
afterwards the Brexit vote that happened, which put paid to a lot of the claims which had been set in stone for a lot of the newspaper coverage at the time. Um, for example, the the balance of the coverage distinct, and again, this is much more prominent in um, in some outlets that are typically conservative supporting or, or typically um, more centre-right in their outlook. It was essentially reported that Scotland's membership of the EU was a no-go, it would never happen, and even if it did happen, it could take upwards of 10 years. Whereas post-2016, it's been shown that that, um, that decision wasn't like really taken, um, was essentially taken out of Scotland's hands. And there has been reports since then is that you know um, Europe might be uh, and the EU might be slightly more open to Scotland's um, renewed membership if Scotland wanted that in in the future. Um, more a more interesting one, um, especially with the, the dynamics that underpin this that I found at the time was um, the the way that people like um, especially Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling how their comments. Were, were framed and how they were presented in terms of them being, I suppose, the, the best uh, the best expression I could use here was as being trusted messengers. And this was um, as, as much as Alistair Darwin was portrayed as, you know, a sort of safe pair of hands and a good man to have at the wheel. God, when Gordon Brown uh, came into the campaign or became more central to the campaign, essentially became the main outlet um, for propagating uh, better together's um, unionist message. Uh, and then so what a kind of fascinating dynamic that I, I didn't really appreciate for what it was at the time was the fact that a whole range of outlets and contributors who for several years had critiqued, ridiculed, dismissed or otherwise pilloried Gordon Brown and seen him as quite a diminished political figure were now quite happy to... Um, not only disseminate his ideas and claims regarding independence with very little critical outlook, but on top of that is there was almost a, a retrospective or a retroactive um, uh, means of changing his political standing in the UK because certainly since he became Prime Minister and even in the, in the years following <clears throat> when he, he lost the election in 2010, as most people would probably be aware of this, is that, in, especially in the likes of the Daily Mail or the Daily Express or the Daily Telegraph, like typically, usually Tory supporting newspapers, as Gordon Brown has by no stretch of the imagination been their favourite political figure, and he is, um, and they have certainly not had any respect for his his, uh, his political career or his um, his campaign mannerisms or him personally, but very, very interestingly, and I think revealingly. In 2014, you see this dynamic completely shift where you have this, I suppose the best way to describe it would be the, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend concept where suddenly the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and whatnot are quite happy to sing Gordon Brown's praises because, because he is now working towards the same agenda and the same end point that they want. And he, ha he had the sort of credentials. He was, you know, a Labour grandee. He was Scottish. He, you know, he'd been Chancellor, he'd been Prime Minister. And suddenly these newspapers, which for several years had given Gordon Brown a very hard time on, on, on almost every aspect of how he conducts himself and how his um, political uh, legacy um, was, was standing or was being tarnished in many ways. For a period of maybe, what, six weeks, seven weeks in the, the autumn of 2014, 
he's transformed into this sort of temporary titan who is a trusted messenger who people can listen to. And if he said, for example, that Scotland would be guaranteed more powers, he was somebody who should be listened to. But these same newspapers had for years said that you can't um, essentially trust anything that comes out of the Labour Party. But this dynamic was shifted on its head temporarily because it served a certain agenda. Yeah, and in certain cases, probably shifted right back once that agenda was fulfilled. As um, Interestingly, in the days after the... The 18th, the newspapers were quite happy to, a lot of the newspapers were quite happy to give Gordon Brown a lot of the credit in terms of the man who saved the union, you know, the man who sort of like uh, rallied the troops right at the end and had been integral in, in changing people's minds or set up, certainly in the presentation of things like the vow or um, ideas about increased powers for Scotland. But another way why, why this, that demonstrates how complex this idea is and how it, it link how it tells you wider. It tells you things about the wider scope and dynamic of British politics, as well as Darling and Brown got a comparatively easy ride, and were turned into these sort of temporary titans because of their role in the Better Together campaign. This also didn't. This, however, didn't extend to all Labour grandees. And the most explicit example, or the most explicit. Um, difference of contrast in this is the coverage that was devoted to Ed Miliband, who was the Labour yeah. UK leader at the time, is he does not get anywhere near the same positive coverage. And I would speculate that the reason for that is as much as the having the um, framing the Labour leader at that time could have been beneficial, there was also a wider concern probably on terms of the centre-right press of having at least one eye on the 2015 general election. So they yeah. didn't want to essentially build up Ed Miliband to any extent which could have longer lasting repercussions from there, from at least from the perspective of Tory supporting newspapers. However, they were more than happy to, to show this, to extend this um this luxury or this this manner of um positive framing to the likes of Gordon Brown and Alistair Darwin because they knew that they, their political star only had to shine temporarily. And wouldn't probably wouldn't have any long-term effects, whereas that couldn't be applied to Ed Miliband, who, especially at the end of 2014, early 2015, some polls were saying had a realistic chance of winning the next general election. It proved ultimately not to be the case, but you can see in the contrast of how Ed Miliband was um still critiqued um during the, even though he was on the sort of the right side from the, the perspective of some of these newspapers. Um, it was still critiqued and uh, dismissed and undermined to a degree, which was not the case with Gordon Brown and Alistair Darwin. And a big thing about that is I think that extending that political capital to Alistair Darwin and Gordon Brown didn't come with the same long-term implications potentially than could have been the case had it been extended to Ed Miliband. Yeah. Staying on the, the topic of people and the independence um, debate and, and the, the media representation of it, you, when we were talking earlier, you told me a very interesting story that surprised me about the the shaping of Ruth Davidson throughout the campaign and after. Could you talk about yeah, it's, that? It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a dynamic that, again, I didn't go looking for, but um, in uh, both the book and the subsequent research I've done for other papers, one of which was specifically on... Ruth Davidson in, in the Scottish media is there's been a, a sort of, to my mind, a retrospective refit of history in terms of exaggerating Ruth Davidson's role in disseminating and propagating the unionist message in 2014. 
<clears throat> because at least judging by how often she is the, the actual focal point of the coverage, whether that be in a story about her or a, you know a photo op, or even on the very very rare occasions where she might get like a guest column or the like, is compared to a number of other uh, politicals and political um, political elites, Ruth Davidson. I'd, don't think by any stretch of the imagination can be described as being a, a, a large, making up a large part of the coverage in 2014, and certainly judging by the newspapers um, that I looked at, <clears throat> is the, the this idea that Ruth Davidson was a key um, a key messenger, a key conduit of the the unionist message, and helped to get the the result that ultimately transpired. To my mind, it doesn't really stand up to evidence when you look at specifically the newspapers. But since, especially as Davidson's political star started to rise between mostly, I think, between 2015 and 2017, where she was positioned by especially a lot of the centre-right papers as a, um, a, a sort of unionist champion, if you want to call it that, in, the, the, um, in a sort of totemic or almost borderline iconic sense, Part of that dynamic was a almost collective agreement that Ruth Davidson had been a key voice in 2014, and with one or two exceptions, where you know she did public events or did speaking engagements. At least judging by the newspapers themselves, there's very very little evidence to substantiate that whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember some of the the, the news stories a bit from around that time that almost had a tone, especially from some of the 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 media based in London, uh, looking at uh, uh, Ruth Davidson and almost saying, please come down and save us. We're not yeah. quite sure what we need saving from, but please come down and save us. It's ultimate because it almost began immediately after, immediately after the referendum because the referendum was obviously on the 18th of September and I think probably within a few days, or certainly within the weeks after that, that's when the um, National UK Party um, conferences happened. And this retroactive refit of saying that um, Ruth Davidson would be a key voice in 2014 and it helped to, you know, shape people's opinions and rally the troops and whatnot. Um, that began at the Tory conference when this was mentioned by David Cameron and he singled her out. He singled her out for, uh, for a mention and, you know, he was seen to give her a thumbs up during her, during her speech. Um, but to my mind, it's, it's very interesting that, this her political legacy has been shaped and it's been sort of collectively agreed upon that she had this integral role and integral role in 2014. But to my mind, at least judging by the newspaper coverage, it might be different on TV, it might be different in social media. But in terms of purely the political entities and um, political personalities who were the focus of coverage in 2014, Ruth Davidson is probably not in the top 10 or top 20. But it's, it's strange that in the, the time since then, it's, it's, it's the, a generalised belief or almost a common sense assumption that she was has taken hold. But at least in the research I've done, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. Let's take things forward from 2014 to 2021. <clears throat> um, we may well be on the cusp of another independence campaign. We, we have a pledge from the Scottish Government to hold another independence referendum by the end of 2023. Still some uncertainty over whether that'll happen, um, but let's take it as read that it will, and we do start to see the ramping up of this independence campaign. 
Have you started seeing the same patterns in the media that you saw in 2014, or do you expect them to start coming out again? You'd, whenever the, the, the issue is discussed, there are similar patterns. Uh, and, 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 and there's nothing really to, to, to my mind that shows that any of the, the newspapers that I looked at have changed um, of, in any dramatic fashion, have changed their position, which they had. In 2014, the newspapers, which were most staunchly unionist or most staunchly critical of independence, are typically, in editorial terms, still that way at the moment. Whereas other, um, and obviously there's aspects of the newspaper dynamic which have changed, you know, there's certain titles that have come into the, the environment yeah. that could have an influence. But in the in relation to themes and, and trends that I've identified in the book, a lot of them, whilst they might be tailored or they might be, um, they might not necessarily take on the exact same form as they did, the, the concepts, um, the concepts and the contextualization in which they've used I think will probably follow a lot of the same patterns. And if anything, they might actually be more forcefully pushed because, for example, if um, the economics, if the supposed economic challenges of independence were seen to be a defining issue in 2014, there's every reason to think that that same narrative will be pushed in any subsequent referendum, especially now given the pressures and challenges raised um, for the UK's collective finances as a result of the, the coronavirus pandemic. So the so aspects of national debt, how certain things would be funded, I would all but guarantee that those same aspects will be raised will be raised again. And in a similar vein, the fact that claim and counterclaim regards the the, the future of Scotland's NHS um, will also probably come under a sharper come into sharper focus again. Um, because of the because of the pandemic, because there's been such a, a focus on a renewed focus uh, on the NHS and their role in combat and what for many people is a, a generational uh, a generation defining event or process. Yeah. So, but, so the fact that the uh, the economy and the NHS were um, major focal points in 2014, I think at the very minimum they will be again, and it's it's, it's speculative, but I think it's there's evidence to think it likely that um, they may well become even more important with the benefit of, or not the benefit, not the right word, with um, uh, given the context of these things in a rapidly changing world, they could actually have an even greater importance um, to, the, to how they fill up the coverage or how they inform the focal points and framing of the coverage than they were in 2014. The dynamic which I think will could potentially be wildly different. I say it could be, it probably by necessity has to be wildly different, is the focus of the, the, the focus on certain individuals, because most of the individuals who were the, the key um, actors, if you want to call it, the key characters in the story of the referendum coverage from 2014, many of them have moved on. So the fact that, you know, like Alex Salmon doesn't uh, in a political role anymore, um, neither is. David Cameron, Alistair Darwin, Gordon Brown, and, a, and an interesting dynamic for me, and probably one that is, is good for um, Scottish politics in many ways, if it can be done, if it's done uh, properly, is the, and I, I think a, a key aspect that could, especially if it happens in the next couple of years, in 2014, it was a very, very male-centric debate in terms of the politicians who were involved and who was leading the campaigns. Whereas it would be, um, obviously a week is a long time in politics and a lot of things could change very rapidly. But at the moment, 
it would be fair to make the assumption that a yes campaign, a pro-independence campaign to take place in the next few years would probably be led by all intents and for all intents and purposes by Nicola Sturgeon. Whereas um, on the, the unionist side, it's not impossible that someone like Ruth Davidson um, could actually take on take on that role. So there may be more more of a female, I mean, a female focused aspect to the discourse, and I think that in itself should is something that is both desirable to happen and in many ways it should be actually quite necessary because an aspect that I don't didn't touch on in the book as much as I could have because I, I addressed it in a separate um, article is the the degree to which the coverage is produced and um, uh, is produced by male journalists is hugely weight is, is hugely disproportionate to the point where some newspapers um, in terms of you know comment pieces or generalized news reporting, sometimes only between ten and fifteen percent of all the output comes from female contributors, and I think that that has to collectively across thousands of articles and across a, a media industry that has to in some way affect uh, the tone of the debate, the frames of reference, and so. And I think it's also um, something which, in many ways, might have to be addressed because if. And the man, the standing of it, and this might be somewhat like naive or, or idealistic in a way, but one of the, the undeniable benefits, I think, of the original referendum process was that it encouraged a debate on a national level about various um, policy concerns and ways in which the country might be run or might move forward. And it was supposed to be a, a national debate that involved everyone, but if, if disproportionately the voices, especially in the public sphere or male, that has to have an impact. And that's something that probably could be a completely different dynamic potentially in the next couple of years, what with more women coming into the media, more social media outlets, and the fact that many of the main political personalities who would be the focal points of media will be women. That could be a very interesting topic for a future podcast. Um, finally, just a lesson for listeners, taking everything you've, you've spoken about, and especially as we're looking forward to um, uh, the newspaper articles to come. If we're faced with a story about independence or about the union, or and, and we suspect that it might be presenting things, framing things in a, an, an, an uncritical way or an overcritical way, what are the kind of warning signs that we should be looking at when we're reading these stories, whether these stories agree with our preconceived view or not, to, to help us better assess the, the quality of the story? I think the, the, it's, it's a very, very complex issue. Mad, if it was, you know, I'm sort of loath to say, so give something like advice. It's more that people, I think, should try and have their own self-critical awareness of the thing, the sources where you're getting your news from especially if you're consistently getting them from similar sources or a similar outlet or a similar or the same newspaper title, is collectively that will have an impact on how you think about things because that's the that's the, the stories that you're being exposed to and what you're engaging with. And it's it's not in any means like I would never like completely dismiss the newspaper industry as an outlet or as like a, a professional role. But I think it's people should be aware that particularly things like editorial sections and comment sections and letter sections, which um, by default in the way that they, they, they make up what a newspaper is, have a certain license to, to be less objective or to be more partisan. And in, especially in, in comment sections, editorials, this is 
um, that this is almost encouraged, that's not expected. But if, if again, is because newspapers are such a ubiquitous part of many people's lives and has always been a part of society, is we can be to some way conditioned or, you know, I wouldn't want to say, you know, sort of tricked into it because that would be too almost Machiavellian or Orwellian to say, but we're certainly conditioned to give like a certain respect in newspapers' headlines and when political information is presented a certain way. And if, and the is the, the thing that I would um, say to people if, if, uh, if they're curious about the question you raised is the best advice I can give is to not get locked into your own echo chambers because especially at the moment like with things like social media and Twitter, on both sides it's incredibly easy to do that, to just only listen to one side of the debate and it's the ones that already tell you your pre-existing um, uh, ideas or your pre-existing concepts and it just reinforces them. And whilst it can take that little bit of extra effort um, on the part of the, the reader or the consumer of news, as I would strongly suggest that people do try and get um, uh, to look out or to search out um, sources of news and political information from multiple sources, even ones that they might not typically go to, because at the very least, if you can, um, if you can see the differences in the coverage for yourself, then these ideas of like framing techniques and the way that certain aspects of stories might be um, presented to you in a way that only serves a certain agenda is be at least being aware of that. And not necessarily just to do with independence, this can do with general UK foreign policy, it can do with almost any concept that can be presented through the media, is be aware that the things that are included in those stories and sometimes more importantly, the things that are deliberately um, taken out of these stories are not emphasised can be incredibly important as to how both yourself as an individual, but society in a cumulative sense builds political ideas. Um, and whilst I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, again, I don't think that the newspaper industry is in, in danger of dying a death anytime soon. And one of the things that I put in the, <clears throat> the final section of the book is, is highly speculative and again probably hugely naive even thinking that this could happen but a second if, if there is a, a, a second independence referendum there's an argument to be made that certain newspapers could regain a legitimacy in the political debate which has been lacking for several years and they could in some way try to revitalize or um, restore to some degree their their reputation as um, outlets for political debate and political um, the dissemination of political ideas, which I, I think has been tarnished in recent years. But again, admittedly, that might be hugely wishful thinking. And it's far more likely that patterns which were identified and seen in the newspaper coverage of 2014, there's not really any reason to think that they won't, on the whole, be um, repeated in, in the next couple of years should the, should the independence issue become live again. So read below the headline and be careful what you're reading and broaden what you're reading. Well, David, Patrick, thank you so much. This has been a, a very, very interesting chat. Um, I will put some information um, on how, you, how folk can check out your book, Front Page Scotland, in the description of this podcast. Uh, and I would just thank you again for coming on to the show. Um, and I'll finish up just as I always do, by reminding uh, our listeners that Commonweal as an organisation is entirely funded by folk like yourself, giving us 
regular donations of £5 or £10 a month. We don't get government money. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't even have adverts on our website. So we are entirely supported by folk like yourselves. Um, And I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. Please listen to it. Please share it around. And please come back next week. 